who uh, who makes it possible for me to do what God has called me to do. Uh, the joy uh, and burden of this calling rest on her shoulders as equally as it does mine. Uh, not the least of which because she has to hear me talk about it when I come home. So uh, my thanks first to Rebecca uh, and. I'm only uh, I'm only as good as uh, a leader's only as good as the team he has uh, working alongside of him. So of course my thanks to Zach. Uh, if Stacy were not feeling under the weather today, I would have her stand and recognize as well. Uh, I get to put them through their paces every week. Of course, my thanks I've already given to to Jennifer. Uh, Fred is not here today. Um, I mean, Becky didn't even last a couple of months under, you know, my leadership. I drove her out like that. So you just know what it what it's like to have to work for me. Uh, but let me also recognize a couple of other people uh, apart from whom this uh, this would not be possible. Let me ask um, let me ask our elders to stand real quick. All of our elders that are here today, let me ask you to stand. Um. I am, I am not the lone shepherd of Grace Fellowship. I have the opportunity to uh, carry that mantle with these other gifted men. Uh, and even just this week, talking to a, a friend of mine uh, who is a church planner in Great Britain uh, and is under some attack, uh, some, uh, some disagreement with men uh, on his, uh, his session, men that are elders along with him. Uh, I was reminded that not everybody is as fortunate as I am, uh, that there are elders who treat uh, their pastor like he's a uh, their hired servant, uh, and there are elders who treat their pastor as if he hung the moon, and I have neither. I have men who are willing to come alongside me and bear this burden together. And so, uh, would you give a hand to your elders, please? Uh, and also, let me ask our deacons to stand. Uh, there's a there's another office in the church that doesn't get as much play, um, but uh, we also have deacons. And while their role is one of uh, behind-the-scenes work, it is very necessary uh, and very good for the church. And so, uh, right now at Grace Fellowship, um, we are very fortunate to have good elders and good deacons. So would you also give a hand to the deacons as well? Thank you, gentlemen. Uh, apart from apart from those men, apart from the gifts that God has given to His church, things would look very different from here, uh, regardless of who stands behind the pulpit. And so, I'm very thankful for uh, those who who have an opportunity or who I get to to labor alongside. It's a privilege and a joy. Thank you for your uh, for your generosity to us over the years. Um, I would say what the Apostle John says of the folks in his church. True, truly what makes my heart glad is to know that my children are walking in the truth. And so uh, the more that we as a church walk in the truth, that is truly, that is truly where I will derive my joy and appreciation uh, from. Uh, that we walk in, that we walk in God's truth. So, um, to that end, let's turn our attention to God's word, to his truth in 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, in Corinthians, if you're uh, if you're new uh, with us this morning, we are looking at a church with some serious issues. Uh, 
Um, I've said it before, I'll say it again, that uh, if you ever have had a bad experience in a church, if you ever just felt like, man, this place is toxic, uh, I can almost guarantee you it wasn't as bad as the church at Corinth. Maybe it was, um, but the church at Corinth had a lot not going for it. And it's interesting that the remedy for them, right, Paul does not say, you know what guys, y'all are really terrible at this thing called church, you should probably just quit. Let's disband and do something else. He doesn't say that. No, their remedy, because they don't have that option, their remedy instead is Jesus. Uh, For all of the different issues they're facing, he points them time and again then I might go out, to the crucified, risen Savior. And that's our remedy too. That's our same issue. Paul's remedy for them and for us is to look again and again at Jesus and to realign our lives around Him. And that's why we're going through this, uh, this series on 1 Corinthians. I had the opportunity to live in Mississippi for a number of years. And I know that uh, people in Chilton County talk about how bad the roads are, and there are a number of uh, severely uh, dysfunctional roads in Chilton County, but I I continue to maintain that they hold nothing, nothing, they don't hold a candle to what you'll find in Mississippi, right? So if you live and drive in Mississippi for an extended period of time, when you take your car to the shop, you're going to need something realigned, right? Uh, They'll look at the underside of your car and they'll say, what in the world have you done? And you just say, oh, I drive in Mississippi. And they say, oh, okay. Right. But right when, when you hit enough holes, when you jar your car enough, things have to be realigned. And that's Corinth. Uh, this church is jarred, it is jacked up, and it needs to be realigned. And so Paul does that by pointing them to Jesus. And right now, we're in a section where Paul is dealing with spiritual gifts, rather the abuse of spiritual gifts. That when the church comes together, when they're worshiping together as the church, they are abusing the gifts that God has given them. And so, let's read 1 Corinthians 14, verses 1 through 25. If... uh if, you're, if you don't have a Bible, grab the, the pew Bible in front of you there. You should find this passage on page 960. Let's give attention to God's Word. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers... If I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves. If with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. 
There are doubtless many different languages in the world and none is without meaning. But if I don't know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person isn't being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So tongues are assigned not for believers, but unbelievers. While prophecy is assigned not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, won't they say you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Let's pray together. God in heaven. As we approach a controversial and difficult passage as we have so many times, Lord, we just ask that you would bless the reading and the hearing and the preaching of your word. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let me switch from my mic to the pulpit. All right, so... uh First Corinthians 14, speaking in tongues. I mean, I think it was pretty clear, right? We can just say amen. Everybody's good. If you have any questions, uh, I will designate Jason. You can ask those to him. Uh, we, we can go ahead and conclude with a song. No, no, no. Um, so Paul is dealing with, uh, with the abuse of spiritual gifts in the church in Corinth. And just to kind of remind you, or if you haven't been with us, to kind of track it along so far, in chapter 12, Paul begins to broach this subject. And what he says in chapter 12 is this, right? We are all charismatics. Well, what I meant by that is that we all have received these gifts of grace from God, right? The word charisma means grace gifts, gifts of grace. And Paul says everyone in the church, every believer, everyone who professes the name of Jesus or everyone who truly believes in Jesus has received a gift. Maybe multiple gifts, right? God apportions those as he wills, but everyone has received a gift and everyone's gift is necessary. That's also important. Everyone's gift in the church, whether it's an upfront gift like preaching or it's a behind-the-scenes gift like administration, all are necessary because the church is a body. And if the church and if part of the body decides it doesn't want to participate, you don't have a healthy body. 
Every gift is necessary. Every member in the body is necessary. Those of you who struggle with chronic illness or chronic pain uh, know what it means to have one part of your body hold you back from doing what you want to do. Right? That because there's a part of your body that is either absent or unhealthy, you are not fully able to engage the way that you wish you could. So it is with the church. Uh, that for those who would, if, if you're on the periphery of the church, you've said, yes, I, you know, I'm glad to belong to Grace Fellowship, but I'm just going to kind of be a spectator and watch. Right? We would say, well, then our body is lacking in health. There are no spectators, and so we we need you to exercise your gifts in order for Grace Fellowship to be all that Grace Fellowship can be. We need everyone to exercise their gifts, and if you're uncertain of what your gift may be, or uh, you would like some guidance in that, then please come talk to me. Talk to uh, one of our elders that you saw standing. Uh, we want Part of what our j- job is as shepherds is to help people find uh, and use their gifts. And sometimes that means that you have to try out things that you may not be very good at, right? You have to actually try some different gifts, right? So maybe it's, maybe it's teaching. So you get involved in teaching and you realize, whoa, I am not a very good teacher. Let me do something else, right? But usually the way to figure out your gifts is to try them on. Um, so that was chapter 12. And then in chapter 13, Paul says, but more important than the spiritual gifts is the spiritual fruit of love. If you don't have love, then your gifts are worthless. So you can have great speaking gifts. You can be an incredible communicator. And if you don't have love, it's just noise. You can be incredibly generous in giving away your stuff, giving away your time, even sacrificing your body. But if you don't have love, it profits you nothing. Apart from love, the spiritual gifts, we could say in one sense, the spiritual gifts lie dead. They cannot accomplish what God wants them to accomplish apart from love. So more than spiritual gifts, pursue spiritual fruit. But now, if we have these gifts, how do we use them? What are they for? And that brings us to chapter 14. And so that we don't miss the forest for the trees, we're going to talk about some very technical stuff. We're going to have to define some terms. But so that we don't miss the forest for the trees, I want you to see that the main point of the whole chapter is that God gives gifts for the building up of His church. God gives gifts, whatever gifts they may be, they are for the purpose of building up His church. That is why they are there. And... Just to reference again last week, the reason that love is better than the gifts is because the gifts don't last forever. Love does. Tongues, prophecy, speaking, teaching, administrating, helping, serving, all of those things will pass away. Because one day we're going to grow up. That's what Paul says. One day we will reach maturity. We will be perfected. We will see our God face to face and we will be fully known. And when we are, we won't need the training wheels called spiritual gifts anymore. We won't need the high chair called preaching anymore because we're going to be face-to-face with Jesus. So the gifts will pass away, but love will not pass away. So, that said, let's get sidetracked on all kinds of interesting issues. Uh, The goal of the gifts is building up the church. I just want to start by defining some terms. And this is going to get kind of technical. uh, And for that, I apologize. It's not our normal practice. But on something like this, it's fairly controversial. Uh, It's good that we go ahead and we say, what do we mean or what do we think uh, these certain words are saying? So we're going to define our terms. 
And then uh, we're going to spend some time talking about Paul's main point, which is that prophecy is really better than speaking in tongues. And we're going to talk about why. But first, let's define our terms. In the same way that when you're going to do construction, you got to do site, you got to do site prep, right? You got to tear out the trees, you got to level the dirt. That's kind of what we're going to do right now. So let's define some terms, let's answer some questions. First, prophecy. Since Paul is advocating that we prophesy and is even saying to the church in in Corinth, yes, speaking in tongues is fine, but really what I want you to do is prophesy, then we need to ask, okay, what exactly does he mean by prophecy? And that's kind of a loaded question. If you look in the Old Testament, excuse my sniffles, by the way, it's allergies, I'm not sick. Um, If you look at the Old Testament, right, you have Old Testament prophets, uh, guys like Moses was a prophet, Isaiah, Malachi, and their job, that word prophet means spokesman. That's what the word prophet means. It's a spokesman. And they were spokesmen, in this case, for God. Their job was to bring a message from God to God's people. And for many of those prophets, their words uh, were written down and became part of the, of the scriptures, the Old Testament canon. That word canon, not two ends like a boom, but canon like the copier next door. That word canon means rule, means measure. And what that, what the way we use that term basically means that God has written down, has inspired writers of the scriptures so that we would have something to go by, right? We would have a rule for faith and practice. What we believe and how we live it out. Okay? So that's happened, that happened in the Old Testament. And that canon was, uh, that canon was closed. Uh, and then in the New Testament, you have these guys called apostles who come along. Uh, you may have heard that word apostle before. We believe it refers to the original uh, men who saw Jesus alive. Right? They saw Jesus. Uh, they saw the risen Jesus. That was the requirement of being an apostle. And they and their associates then wrote down what we come to know as the New Testament. Now, if you want to uh, go through exactly how that process works and you've got a couple hours and a cup of coffee, we can talk about it. We won't go through all of that this morning. But basically, what you have is the writings of the New Testament paired with the writings of the Old Testament, and that becomes the established canon or rule for our faith, right? So that is Genesis to Revelation. That is God's authority. And because it is God's authority, uh, it is perfect, and it is infallible. And it is closed. There is no addition to that. John is pretty clear about that at the end of Revelation. Again, we can talk more about why we think that uh, that to be true. But basically, the first point we need to make as we talk about these miraculous gifts is this. We believe that the Bible is complete. We do not believe there is any further revelation. So, I'm used to moving. I want to move, but I can't. Uh, so, the Book of Mormon which claims to be kind of part two of the Bible, is not part two of the Bible. Uh, and if you want, um, this requires just a, just a little bit of, of maybe familiarity with the Bible, but if you ever read those books side by side, if you're really familiar with the Bible, and then you read the Book of Mormon, you can begin to notice that they're not the same. Their message is not the same. The message of the Bible is that man is hopelessly lost apart from God's Savior, Jesus Christ. 
That's the whole message of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. If you read the Book of Mormon, at least as far as I've read it, what I get out of it is you need to try really hard to be good because God loves good people. Well, those two books have a very different message. The Book of, the, the Book of Mormon is not inspired Scripture because we believe the canon is closed. There are, no, there are no more books to be added to it. There is no more revelation to be added to it. All that we need, we find between Genesis and Revelation. Um, so that means that God's binding authority on His people is complete in the writings of the Old and New Testament. Now, that said... We also see some other prophets in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament. Uh, we see, for instance, a man named Agabus in the book of Acts. And what we see is that they're called prophets, and they even give some predictive prophecies, but they are not binding in the same way as the Bible is. Acts 21 is a great example of this. There are a number of prophets who tell the Apostle Paul that the Spirit is telling them that bad things are waiting for Paul in Jerusalem, right? So the Spirit is telling these prophets that bad stuff's going to happen to Paul if he goes to Jerusalem and that he shouldn't go. Now, if their word is binding in the way that Scripture is binding, then Paul only has one choice. Don't go, right? If their word as a prophet, in, in that, in the, we'll, we'll say like a lowercase p sense, right? If their word as prophets is binding, then Paul doesn't have a choice. He has to, he, he has to obey. But Paul's response to them in Acts 21 is, mm, the Spirit's telling me to go. And so here we have a message from God delivered for a particular situation, uh, and yet there's some disagreement about the outcome of that, okay? So, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say that there is a category of prophecy that does not, that, that is not adding to the Bible, but that it is a word from God for a particular situation. And that is not always infallible. Right? Somebody, like in the case of Acts 21, somebody receives a vision or a word that is from God, and yet the way they apply that word may not be accurate. Right? As in the case of Acts 21. And so Paul, uh, knowing also that he has the Spirit, discerns and moves forward. In fact, Paul says that later on in 1 Corinthians 14, that when there are prophecies, you have to judge them. You have to discern them. So I think there's a category here for prophecy that doesn't mean new revelation, but simply means that when somebody receives a word or a vision from God that's for, as Paul says, uh, for the encouragement, building up, and consolation of the church. I think that's okay. Again, I'm not adding to the Bible. I'm simply saying that there is a gift... Now, some in, some in our camp, uh, the camp that I belong to, would say, well, prophecy means preaching. I don't know, I, I don't see, those may overlap a little bit, but I don't see them always going together. I can't make that biblical case. But, so if I'm going to define prophecy in the, at least the terms that Paul means it this morning, it's not authoritative scripture, but it is a word or maybe a vision from God that takes the truth, truth of scripture and applies it to a particular and current situation. Okay? That was a really long explanation. Sorry. Paul says, talks about speaking in tongues. Alright? Now this is where it begins to get really dicey. Um, there's a couple of opinions out there on, the, on, what, on what exactly is meant. First, speaking in tongues 
would be uh, the, the tongue would be a known foreign language. That's what we see in the book of Acts, right, where God enables a person to speak in a language that is unknown to them, but would be known to someone else. So I don't know Swahili, but if all of a sudden I started speaking Swahili and I had no idea what that meant, I would be speaking in tongues according to this first perspective. And again, that's what we see happening in the book of Acts. There's another view that says tongues are not existing human languages, but some kind of unknown spiritual language. So we're not talking about the phenomenon in Acts. Now we're talking about something else. And that kind of seems to be what Paul is talking about here because he uses all this language about if I speak in a tongue, I'm speaking to God, not to men. Nobody understands me, etc. And we would kind of ask the question, well, why would nobody understand you if this was a known human language? So to be honest... I haven't quite come down exactly what I think about this. I'm inclined to go with the first opinion because that seems to be the normal use of the word. But then I don't know why Paul speaks the way that he does. So I'm just kind of being honest with you up front. When Paul talks about tongues as a gift, uh, I have I have lots of doubts about the way that this is commonly practiced in modern American church. Okay, uh, But there it seems to be some kind of window for opportunity here. So... Um, the other question that we need to answer is, have these gifts ceased? So if there were gifts of tongues and prophecies and healing, these miraculous signs gifts, there's a group that says those gifts have ceased, that they no longer are valid because they were attached to the apostles. And once the last apostle died, those gifts no longer exist. We don't, we don't need them anymore. The canon is closed. Um, there are a lot of good men, men that I admire who hold this position, uh, but biblically, I don't see it. Uh, biblically, I don't see quite where um, where it says that these gifts must be attached to an apostle and that they necessarily have ceased. Now, that's not to say that I don't think they're misused or abused. I think that happens, but I don't necessarily see the scriptural position that they've ceased. I'm aware of what 1 Corinthians 13 says, that they will cease. But he doesn't say that happens when the apostles die out. Now, next to that, I agree that the canon is closed. Hold that, you know, that's, that, is, that is the main rock, that the canon is closed. So if there is an exercise of the gifts of tongues or uh, prophecy that fits underneath the closed canon, then that's where I am. I do not agree that we can add to the scriptures, but I wonder if there's not an open window for prophecy or tongues to be used underneath that umbrella. Okay, uh, Historically, so moving beyond just what we see in the Bible, but historically, within the first centuries after the apostles die, we continue to see uh, a, lot of the, a lot of the church fathers talk about miraculous gifts being used in their churches, and they talk about them positively. And they even use those miracles as signs that they preach the truth and their opponents are false prophets. So people like Justin Martyr, Tertullian, Origen, Basil the Great, Augustine, right? They all spoke of God doing miracles in their churches. But most importantly, they spoke of those miracles being done in accordance with the scriptures. Justin Martyr, I believe, even says that the miracles in his church are done by the book. He uses that phrase, by the book. 
And so he talks about the miraculous gifts, but they are conformed to and controlled by the authority in the scriptures. They were not adding to the book, but were confirmed and controlled by the book. So in short, at least where I'm coming down today, um, feel free to disagree. As long as you contend that the canon of Scripture is closed and that gifts like tongues and prophecy aren't adding to the Bible, then I'm okay with there being some room for the practice of those gifts, whatever, uh, whatever they may look like. In fact... Uh, that's what seems to be happening in Corinth. It's interesting that uh, all of these, that, that most of the New Testament letters assume some miraculous happenings uh, in the churches. So what, what is happening uh, is that some people are abusing these miraculous gifts. They are abusing these sign gifts. So these gifts can be abused. There can be false versions of these gifts. And so Paul has to bring the word to bear on these misuse. All right. So with that in mind, let's look at what Paul is actually saying here in 1 Corinthians 14. And his point is this. Prophecy is better for the body than speaking in tongues. Prophecy is better for the body than speaking in tongues. Let's take a look at verse 1. Paul says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Pursue love. Paul picking up what he uh, laid down in chapter 13. Pursue, chase after, go getter. That's what Paul says to do with love. Alright? The opposite of indifference, the opposite of apathy. Paul wants these people to chase after and pursue love. And then he says this, uh, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Um, so before all, pursue love, but then you can desire spiritual gifts. Now, you may have a question, right? If you go back to chapter 12, Paul says there that God gives the gifts to whomever he wills, whenever he wills. So you might ask, well, if it's up to God, then why do I need to, why do I desire, right? I just get what I get and I don't pitch a fit, Right? I mean, if, if God is sovereign over what gifts I have, then I don't need to ask for any others. And Paul says, that, that's not how that works at all. No, you can desire spiritual gifts. You can desire to be a better teacher. You can desire to be a better evangelist. You can desire to be a better helper or servant, right? You can desire to be able to speak a word of encouragement. You should pray for that, right? What you're praying for is that God would help you be more useful, that God would help you be more useful in building up the body. So why is he so keen on prophecy? Why is prophecy better than speaking in tongue? Look at verse 2. He says, One who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Why is prophecy better? Paul says, because it builds up, it does the most good for the most people. 
Speaking in tongues may have some benefit as a spiritual prayer language, if that's what it is. But at the very least, it may have some benefit on the personal level between you and God. But prophecy is better because it benefits the whole of the church. So when the church comes together, Paul says, I would rather you prophesy. I'm fine with you speaking in tongues, right? He said, I speak in tongues. I speak in tongues more than all of you do. But in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind than a myriad of words in tongues. And so Paul says it's better uh, because it builds people up. Here's what he says. uh, The one... Excuse me. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. Where am I looking? Oh, verse 3. The one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Notice that prophecy doesn't have a whole lot to do with predicting the future. That's not really the function of prophecy in the church. The way that Paul talks about it here is its purpose is building up, encouraging, and consoling believers. Consoling the church. The word of encouragement or a word of consolation. Not only that, but prophecy is better because it's more understandable to the most people. That's what he illustrates there in verses 6 through 12, right? We have a lot of talented musicians uh, on our stage for a church of our size. God has blessed us greatly with that. Um, If I were to pick up that guitar right now and play the Star Spangled Banner, you would have no clue that's what that song was, right? Uh, an, an instrument in the hands of someone who doesn't know how to use it is just making noise, right? Uh, and so Paul says in the same way, if you don't understand what I'm, what you're hearing, right? If the bugle makes an indistinct sound, nobody's getting ready for battle. Uh, if you don't know the foreign language of a speaker who's speaking to you, then he's a foreigner, right? You can't, there's no terms of agreement. You can't be understood. Paul says the same way with speaking in tongues. If you do that in the midst of the church, people won't be able to understand and the church won't be built up. And that's what we're here for. We're here to be understood so that we can be built up. And he kind of pits those two uh, gifts against each other in verses 13 through 19, right? Verse 14, he says, If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What does that mean I'm supposed to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't even know what you're saying? Paul says we should strive to be understood so that other people who don't know, outsiders, can understand what it is we're saying. The whole point of it, though, comes down to this for me in verse 24. Paul says, but if all prophesy... So Paul is contrasting using these two gifts in worship. He says, really, tongues should be left for the individual... Uh, prophecy, that's the gift you want to pray for. That's the gift you want to use because here's what happens. If all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. That's what we want. We don't want people to um, 
clap their hands and applaud the use of gifts that they don't even understand the meaning of. We're not even necessarily interested in the big show, emotional hype. That's not what we're interested in. What we want is for people who don't know Jesus to hear God's word and fall on their faces and worship him. That's what we're after. That's how we ought to use our spiritual gifts so that those who don't know the Lord hear, and Paul says, are convicted, right? He says that they, they feel the weight of their sin. They see the emptiness of their idolatry. Paul says so that their, their hearts are disclosed, right? That they're laid bare. That what's on the inside is brought outside. And look, that can happen even if you've been in church your whole life. Right? This is not just, this is not just for people. If you're here this morning and this is the first time you've set foot inside a church, yes, we want this for you. But even if you've been here your whole life, if you've been in church your whole life doing religious things, we want this for you. We want your eyes to be opened. We want you to feel the weight of your sin. We want the inward thoughts of your heart to be disclosed. And we want you to fall on your face before God. That's what we do. That's what ought to define us as a church, our gathering as a church. That we are falling on our faces before God, worshiping Him. We got to have a membership interview before, uh, and it was one of the most encouraging things to hear this person say, the Spirit of God is at work in your church. You want to you wanna know what, what warms a pastor's heart? That right there. And I don't know that it has a whole lot to do with me. Yes, I'm exercising my gifts, but it has a whole lot to do with you as well exercising your gifts. Friends, that's what we want. We want people to come in from outside the church to watch us, to witness us, and say, God is among you. Paul contrasts two prophets, right? He said, he quotes Isaiah where Isaiah says, because my people don't listen to me, then they will be let, then they will be led off by people of a foreign tongue. They will be judged by outsiders. But he says, when we, when we use the gifts correctly, he quotes another prophet in saying, God is among you. That's what we want. We want people to come into our midst and say, God is among you. If you're here this morning and you have never professed faith in Jesus, or maybe you thought you had, but now you're not so sure, our prayer is that your heart is laid bare before God. And we want you to fall on your face and we... Maybe not literally, uh, but we want you to we want you to see your sin, and we want you to see your savior. That because God is at work, He is drawing people to Himself, people who have never known Him before, and people who maybe think they've known Him their whole lives. We want people to be convicted and drawn to Jesus. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you for this word, Lord. Whatever is. Uh, from me and not from you, I pray that you would cause it to be forgotten and blown away. Um, Lord, I know that uh, that these are difficult waters and that uh, oftentimes we uh, simply just state our best opinion. But your word, O oh Lord, is more than opinion, it is truth. And so would you continually align our hearts according to your truth. Uh, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.